Welcome back to the People's Tax Pod. I'm your host, Adam Poisner, and I'm joined today by the People's Tax Panel, David, Vivian, and Phil. At the People's Tax Pod, we've realized that America is plagued with three huge interrelated problems, and we think that you would agree. The first part is our ever-growing inequality. We have witnessed the gross exacerbation of this problem through the pandemic. The middle class seems to have finally shattered, while the upper middle class and the upper class are wealthier and more secure than ever. The second part is the tax system's role in exacerbating this problem. We tax wages rather than wealth, which means that those who are already wealthy can make money off of their money and avoid most of the influence of the tax code. The third part is that the tax code could be a solution to this problem. Smarter tax policy could make sure that the wealth accumulation by the richest is used to help everyone else, helping to solve the widespread inequality. This week, to highlight our three points, I want to circle back to one of Biden's proposals while on the campaign trail. He brought up changing Internal Revenue Code 1014, or the stepped-up basis on death. This is related to our perennial topic at the People's Tax page of buy, borrow, die. Using this strategy, the wealthiest are able to avoid paying taxes. One of the reasons that this has caught our attention is the recent death of billionaire Sheldon Adelson. With his death, Sheldon Adelson was able to complete the final step of buy, borrow, die and move $30 billion to his heirs untaxed. David, could you give us all a refresher on the broad overview of buy, borrow, die and why it is almost assured that Sheldon Adelson's heirs will benefit from it? Absolutely. Sheldon Adelson is frankly a really good example of this. He was well known for his aggressive tax planning using gifts to get an estimated $8 billion out from the gifts and estate taxes. And now that he has passed, he has successfully avoided the income tax on much of his $34 billion. This probably doesn't surprise us as someone who made his wealth as a casino magnet. You know, you would expect that he's going to be shrewd with, with margins, frankly. And, you know, that is his reputation. This buy, borrow, die process, it's something we've harped on a lot, but the point is it's simple, the point is it's effective, and and ultimately the point is it's unfair. It starts with that buy step. You buy appreciating assets. You know, it may be a distressed casino that you can turn into an event space to draw more people into Las Vegas. That casino is going to provide an income for expanding and developing that asset and developing further assets. As a result, your casinos are going to become more and more valuable. You're going to have more and more wealth. As a side note on this, you know, everyone knows you'd have to be an absolutely terrible businessman not to earn money in a casino. It's literally people giving you money. But you still won't sell your assets, even once they've earned value, even once you've made money, and even once you want to spend that money, you won't sell your assets. Because if you did, you'd have to pay the taxes on them. So instead, what you do is you borrow money. Debt, when you take it out, isn't taxed, and it can be collateralized against your assets. So you're not going to need to pay it back until you sell your assets. What this means is you can get liquidity, you can get cash to spend, whether it's on you know a house or a yacht, and, and you don't have to pay the capital gains taxes on your assets in order to do so. You won't then sell your assets until you have died. When you die, the income tax that is baked into your capital gains gets washed away. It's, it's that, that Section 1014, it's known as the angel of death provision. The government literally just forgets about it. 
So any assets that you've held on to until your death now have a tax-free income. If you started out with a few million dollars but now have a few billion dollars, you could have billions of dollars of untaxed income when you die. Some of it might be captured by the estate tax, but there are ways to avoid that besides. This brings us around to really, I think, the most important part of this, which is the fundamental unfairness of this all. It's not necessarily in my mind about the magnitude, about the policy of it. It's more about just the unfairness. It creates intergenerational entrenched wealth and it encourages intergenerational entrenched wealth. Without meaningful solutions, you know, think about it this way. The great-grandchildren of today's tech founders will be hundred millionaires simply by the dint of luck. They will never need to worry about where their food or shelter or even entertainment comes from. And yet, they're going to be the ones who will likely have the best access to politicians if they aren't the politicians themselves. It's not just unfair that they get something we don't. It's unfair in that it warps our ruling class to cater to people who lack a fundamental understanding of what it means to be a normal American. You know, that's buy, borrow, die in the nutshell. It's really simple. It allows you to amass a lot of wealth without paying taxes on it. And it allows you to pass it on with minimal detractions from, from how much you can pass from generation to generation. This is a fairly glaring loophole in the system. It really shows off the inequality in the tax law between the rich and the poor, as well as the long-term effects of having such a disparity. Vivian. How would we go about closing a loophole like this? Thanks, Adam. So the most obvious solution to the issues that David described would be to eliminate the stepped-up basis loophole in Internal Revenue Code, Section 1014. And there's a whole legislative process that tax reform proposals have to go through. So I want to take, take us through that. So first of all, you know, all bills for raising revenues, which encompasses tax reform bills, must start in the House of Representatives. And this is pursuant to the origination clause in Article One of the U.S. Constitution. So, you know, after being introduced in the House, a bill, the bill would go to the Ways and Means Committee. And this committee would then hold public hearings um, and also hear testimony from witnesses um, kind of with different backgrounds and different viewpoints on the reform proposal. So witnesses could include research directors at prominent think tanks, CEOs of large companies, and law professors. And following these public hearings, the Ways and Means Committee members would submit a proposed tax law, uh, along with the committee report providing justifications for the proposal. And then the entire House you know, debates this proposal, adds amendments, and then conducts a final vote. The vote would only require a simple majority um, to pass the bill. So, you know, after getting through the House, the bill would then move on to the Senate, um, where it is assigned to the Senate Finance Committee for revisions. And, you know, similar to its counterpart in the House, the Senate Finance Committee would debate and refine the proposal and then present the proposal to the entire Senate for a vote. And, you know, I just want to note that, you know, historically, one hurdle to tax reform and reform in general has been the Senate filibuster, um, which is a method for indefinitely delaying a vote on a bill. I won't go into detail about this, but it should be noted that certain tax reform proposals are filibuster proof if they proceed through an optional procedure called reconciliation. And reconciliation largely pertains to budget resolution policies, which affect permanent spending revenue programs. So in our case, you know, since closing up the stepped up basis loophole, 
does not pertain to spending, it appears unlikely that eliminating stepped-up basis would qualify for this reconciliation process, and thus the filibuster would likely remain an obstacle. But assuming that the bill makes it past the filibuster and to the floor for a vote, only a simple majority would be required to approve the proposal. I also want to flag that if the Senate changes the bill, the bill has to then return to the House for any additional revisions. And in this scenario, the House and the Senate would create a joint committee consisting of members from both houses, and this joint committee would attempt to reach a mutually agreeable version. And this revised version would then have to achieve majority votes in both the House and the Senate to pass. And for the final step in the process, the president, you know, would then have 10 days to sign the bill into law or veto the bill. Even if the president vetoes the bill or refuses to sign the bill, Congress can then override that veto if they are able to obtain a two-thirds majority vote in each house. Um, So that's a quick rundown of how we would close up this loophole through the legislative process. Thanks, Vivian. It's good to go over the process. It seems like if there was motivation and then it wasn't caught in a filibuster, we could see this tax loophole close quite quickly. We usually end our discussion about buy, borrow, die at either of the previous two points, but I wanted to ask Phil a little bit more about the monetary impact of closing this loophole. Phil, are there any estimates on how much closing this loophole might bring in? And what are some usage of this additional tax revenue that would be beneficial to the American people? Yeah, like you said, Adam, there are so many reasons to repair the capital gains and stepped up basis loopholes and the resulting additional capabilities of a federal government with much more cash is one of those reasons. The first number that we want to think of is about 50 billion. Uh, As with any tax policy prediction, it's not an easy question to answer, you know, how much money would changing the policy be? Because we can't assume that wealthy taxpayers will pay all the money that they currently save through current loopholes, which Vivian outlined. They might just find new loopholes. This is why wealthy individuals paid a relatively constant percent of their earnings and taxes through the mid 20th century, when tax rates went all the way up to 90%. So a more accurate way of saying this is how much money do we currently lose to these loopholes? Well, according to a study by Princeton, we currently lose more than 50 billion per year in federal revenue just from the capital gains tax benefits. And even in a conservative estimate, taking into account the subsequent responses of wealthy taxpayers, Princeton estimates that raising the capital gains tax by just 5% could bring in between 18 and 30 billion more dollars of federal revenue. Similarly, the federal revenue loss from the step of the basis loophole is around 50 billion. It's very easy to see that the capital gains and stepped-up basis benefits, loopholes, whatever you want to call them, are two of the U.S.'s most formidable tax expenditures. I want to stress again how powerful it would be to eliminate these loopholes. Not only would we be decreasing um, avenues for wealth inequality by mandating that the rich pay their fair share, but we would also have so much more cash available for all government programs. But what would happen specifically to that extra cash being raised? Well, back to my earlier comment about how wealthy taxpayers, like a chess player in check, yet constantly avoiding checkmate, pay around the same effective tax rate no matter how tax laws change. Part of this has been due to an underfunded and weak IRS. So if these extra funds from closing loopholes are directed toward the IRS, it's likely that wealthy taxpayers will have less room to move 
and we can justly and righteously raise more tax revenue. The other seemingly obvious investment for new cash is federal projects, as it was explained to us in an earlier podcast by Professor Michael Simkovic. Federal government investments have a, a much higher return on investment than typically assumed, as Professor Simkovic told us, because these returns come to fruition over long periods of time rather than the short uh, return on investment of a typical business. So one example of quality federal projects are investments in poor areas with low labor costs. This increases pay, which then decreases cross-country or state or county inequality. But for any of this to happen, we need to close or at least repair the capital gains and stepped-up basis loopholes. Phil, there are a lot of fantastic options for using this additional revenue. Hopefully, this loophole is closed soon and we can see some of these things actually happen. 5RODI is a perfect exemplar of the three major problems that the People's Tax Pod sees America facing. It shows off the growing divide among the rich and the middle class and the increased wealth inequality. It clearly shows off that tax is a major reason for this growing divide. And finally, Bybardi gives us a look at a potential to solve these problems through tax. Thank you again, David, Vivian, and Phil, for joining me today to discuss Bybardi. To our audience, thank you all for listening, and we hope you were able to learn something or think about these topics in a new light. If you have any questions or want to subscribe to our newsletter or donate, head over to peoplestaxpage.org. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at People's Tax Page. And finally, you can rate and subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud at People's Tax Pod. Stay safe, and we'll see you next time.